Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was recorded on April 15th at about 2pm London time. So obviously, as always, if there's anything that's happened in the meantime since we recorded this, we were obviously unable to cover it. So as always for this second season as well, I'm delighted that we're being sponsored by IB Taurus, an offshoot of Bloomsbury Publishing. And for all of our listeners, our sponsors, IB Taurus, have kindly offered a 35% discount on all books relating to politics and Middle East from bloomsbury.com. Just at checkout, use the discount code TALKINGIBT19. That's all capital letters, TALKINGIBT, and then the number 19. And we'll put that discount code in the description as well. Also, if you don't want to buy a book, but you want to sell a book from Bloomsbury, if you want to put a book proposal in, be sure to contact them uh, if you've got that idea about what you want to write about. If you want to publish with them, it's a great publisher to go with. Also, as always, if you or anyone you know would be interested in doing a Master's in Terrorism and Security Studies, be sure to check out our Master's here at Royal Holloway University of London. It's offered in our central London campus between Bedford Square and Senate House and offers an interdisciplinary analysis of terrorism, counter-terrorism studies and all uh, aspects to do with that, psychology of terrorism. Uh, debates in terrorism, debates in counter-terrorism. We even look at organized crime, terrorist communication, etc. And one of those issues that we will be looking at within uh, and across this Masters are the issues of de-radicalization and disengagement. And that's what I'm going to be talking to today's guest about uh, in this episode. I'm delighted to be joined uh, by James Khalil, one of the authors of the new Rusi report, De-Radicalization and Disengagement in Somalia. Really fascinating re- research that's been carried out by James and his colleagues and published by Rusi. There is a link to it in the description as well and we'll tweet out a link. Actually, yes, if you want to follow us on Twitter, be sure to follow us at terror underscore podcast or follow me at Marson underscore score jf but anyway you haven't come to listen to my uh, twitter handles or about all those other things you've come here to listen to james research about de-radicalization and disengagement in somalia so james thank you so much for being on today's podcast thanks very much john it's really good to, to be here so could you give us a, a bit of a background how did you get involved in this area of work this area of research um, so initially i i was doing a master's at uh, the university of bath uh, in, t- in international development, um, which I found very interesting, but um, towards the end of it, I, I, I started reading up on, on Peru, and I discovered the case of uh, Sendero Luminoso, or, or Shining Path. Um, so I focused on them for my dissertation, and, and, I was, and I was hooked straight away. I just found it absolutely fascinating that such a, a brutal organization could some come so close to essentially taking over the Peruvian state in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and so, yeah, so that was, that was the, in, the initial step into it. Um, from there, I then did uh, a PhD at the University of Leeds, looking into the Maoists in Nepal, uh, focusing on how they managed to generate support from the local population. Um, looking into, so for instance, the relative importance of their efforts to provide development assistance to empower women, to um, empower marginalized ethnic groups, to um, empower uh, marginalized marginalized castes, 
their rhetoric against India, their rhetoric against America, their rhetoric against uh, the monarchy, all these different factors which they use to try and generate uh, popular support from the, from the community. Uh, so that was, that was the focus, and I, and I did field research in, in uh, three different sort of semi-remote parts of the country to, to find out a bit more. So. And how then, from this kind of research, did you come to the space where you're carrying out research in Somalia and elsewhere in relation to issues like de-radicalization and disengagement? Uh, so while I was doing my PhD, I, was, I simultaneously did, I was working for the Ministry of Defense, so I did my PhD part-time, uh, working as, as an analyst for the Ministry of Defense. Um, I think I was there for about three, three or four years, something like that. Um, and during the course of that, I, I deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq, um, and my role there was primarily uh, I mean, it was a f essentially monitoring and evaluation role. Uh, it was called campaign effects assessment, which was more or less monitoring and evaluation. My, my primary task there was, was uh, analyzing survey data from, from local populations, as in household surveys. Um, and so when I left the Ministry of Defense, I straight away became a consultant, and that was the most natural niche to fit into, was to, to continue doing household surveys in, well, primarily Afghanistan and, and South South Sudan at that point. Um, so that was the you know, the most natural route into consultancy is making the most of this uh, skill set that I'd learned when I was with the, the Ministry of Defence. So. And could you give us a bit of background, a bit of contextualisation for our listeners? I like we have a international listenership here. Most of our listeners will have heard of uh, conflict in Somalia, will have heard of or groups and movements like Al-Shabaab. Um, could you give us a bit of contextualization for this uh, this research? What was what would be important for our listeners to know? Um, okay, so I, I'd say probably the best word uh, to use is, is stalemate uh, at the minute. It's more or less been fairly stalemated over the last, since around 2013 or 14, I think, something like that, about five years. Uh, before that, uh, Al-Shabaab controlled a lot more territory than they do now. They, they lost a lot to, to uh, Amazon forces from, from the African Union. Um, and since then, there hasn't been a great deal of movement either way. You know, some territory has been gained or lost, but more or less it's, it's remained fairly stable in terms of, of who controls what. And still, still to, I mean, t to clarify, Shabab still controls a huge amount of territory, particularly the, the rural areas uh, in, in vast parts of the country. Um, do they have large-scale community support, are you aware of, or within, within those areas, or how are they viewed? across the region. Yeah, I mean, it's support's always a, a tricky one. They're certainly the dominant actor um, in a lot of the country. They are de facto the, the government in, in a lot of areas. Um, they provide, you know, it's, 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 it's a parallel state, essentially, in, in a lot of areas. They provide services just, just as any government does. Um, and and so you know this is this is the background for for why a lot of people do get involved and in, and and become involved with with Al Shabaab because it's 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 kind of a natural progression of your for many youngsters they you know they get to sixteen seventeen they don't know what they want to do with their lives and it's it's a natural step is to join the local administration or you know the the military wing of 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 that um, so yeah so so. Essentially, they d I think the best way to, to, to sort of frame it is in terms of their, their dominance or at least heavy influence over, over huge parts of, of the country. And 
so with that context in mind, what was your, what was this research team? What were you all aiming to achieve? What was, what were you, what were you doing with this research from the beginning? Uh, what were your research questions or hypotheses? And could you just give us an understanding of how you approach this research? Okay. Well, so the context is I, I was contracted. My role is within a rehabilitation center in Mogadishu. Um, and I'm within that centre. I'm responsible um, from the international team for monitoring and evaluation of of, of the program and for for research. Two two hats essentially. I mean, they're closely related, but but slightly distinct. Um, so the research was basically to inform this program um, directly. It's you know it's directly for for you know programming to influence that to help them design. Uh, the services that are provided in this rehabilitation center uh, to help them understand how best they can support people reintegrate after they leave the center to help them uh, the implementers understand how they can encourage more people to to leave al shabaab so it's very very policy oriented the, the research and the program you're talking about this is the national program for the treatment and handling of disengaged combatants yes yes so. yeah um and could you give us a bit of background into this program specifically? What uh, there are five core pillars to this program, for example. Yeah. So, so the five core pillars are the first one is is outreach. So this is essentially messaging uh, campaigns to try and encourage people to to leave Al Shabaab. Uh, directly trying to to reach current members directly themselves and also via families and so on. So there's, you know, there's different routes. So one very obvious example is, is successive presidents of the country have, have declared amnesty um, on the radio on, you know, via, via various means. Uh, it's not, uh, without wanting to go on off, off on too much of a tangent, because I know this is now not answering your question, but it's not, it's not a formal amnesty or it's not, there's no, there's no legal or policy-based framework for the amnesty. It's just a declaration that the president has has made. But people in general are are aware of it in Somalia. So that's the first pillar is is, is outreach. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's there's you know there's there's all sorts of different routes. There's leaflet drops. There's there's, there's various communications via radio and so on, so on and so forth. Uh, the second is reception. So this is the phase of of, of um, informing. The relevant, primarily the relevant security actors of, of what to do, how to process people once they've left Al Shabaab, what you know, how they how they channel them further down the national program. Uh, screening is the third pillar, which is essentially sorting out uh, those who are low risk from high risk. Um, those who are low risk are, are basically those who have denounced Al Shabaab, Al -Shabaab ideology. Um, they disengaged voluntarily as opposed to being captured. Um, and then not seen as a th as being a threat to the public, and so if you're deemed to be low risk, then you are eligible for rehabilitation, which is the fourth pillar. And there's a, there's a couple of different centres in different parts of of Somalia which which provide this rehabilitation, and, and the one I'm involved with specifically is the one in Mogadishu, as I said. Um, and then the fifth pillar is is reintegration, so support to to help people return to, to communities after they're, they're finished with the rehabilitation. And I think this issue, uh, when we're talking about the sample that you were talking to, 
the issue that these are low risk there mm-hmm. you're only looking at those uh, those low risk former members of al-shabaab who had disengaged voluntarily i think that's really important for our listeners to understand when listening to this and when reading the report as well and something that is re-emphasized throughout the report as well yeah absolutely. one of the things that when we're looking at your research outputs both here and elsewhere is we can see the methodological sophistication, the appreciation um, for research methods, uh, for appreciation for interview techniques, sampling, etc. So, how did you go about um, go about this this research methodologically? Are there any important ca- other caveats that that our listeners need to understand? I mean, I think the most important is one you've you've already said. It's not. It's certainly not a representative sample of, of Al Shabaab by by any means. These are these are low risk individuals or people who have been deemed to be low risk. Uh, also, geographically, it's not representative. It's it's you know the sample is from uh, in and around Mogadishu rather than f- the whole of Somalia. Um, another big big caveat is that is to do with data reliability. I mean, if you're interviewing uh, people who have formerly been involved in this type of violence don't expect them always to tell you the truth. Um, so, when you set out this this report here, while it's by title looking at de-radicalization and disengagement, you also look at that initial engagement uh, within uh, a small section of your sample of why people uh, became involved, why and how. What did you find? Uh, from this section, uh, what were the the core reasons? How could you break that down? Yeah, so this was the first. So actually, within within the report itself, there was it, it's it's essentially a series of, of fairly small-ish uh, pieces of research which have been put together and merged into one uh, broader report. The first study that uh, I, I did was in November two thousand fifteen, looking at specifically that how and why people joined and and left Al Shabaab. Um, obviously, this provides important or critical contextual information for people who are designing a rehabilitation reintegration program. Um, in terms of why people, how and why people got involved, a lot of people got involved um, for economic motives. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about a lot of a lot of areas where livelihood options are pretty limited. Um, Al Shabaab promises a salary, so people get involved for that reason. Um, a lot of people. Well, it's not quite so prominent, but people get involved because they are coerced to, s- to varying degrees, uh, and and there's a lot of s- um, a lot of people get involved for for adventure, for status, for for revenge, for all sorts of of, of psychosocial motives as well, uh, which is quite often overlooked in the literature. But but these are yeah absolutely absolutely critical factors. And how about the role of ideology? Does I did you see ideology playing a, a role here? We, with a small, we, we, there was a small number who were ideologically motivated, but precisely because this isn't a representative sample, the, it, the you know the sample selects against it. Um, uh, the, the caveat to add, the additional caveat to add is, is when we inherited the centre in 2015, um, it wasn't in great shape to be to be blunt or <laughs> to be honest about it, uh, and in particular the screening process wasn't up to scratch. So there was a lot of people. Uh, in the centre, who who shouldn't have been? It should have been exclusively for low risk uh, individuals, but there were some ideologically motivated people in there. So. Okay. And what effect was this having then on the the rehabilitation program itself? Uh, it was, re- I mean, it was really disruptive. You, you essentially, back in two thousand and fifteen, you did have factions within within 
the centre. Um, huge amounts of suspicion because people were aware that uh, other people were still were still supportive of Al Shabab. Um, yeah, so I mean, it it just under undermined the program. And and just just to say as well, John. I mean, that's it's it's you know we've we've moved on substantially mm-hmm. since then. Um, we don't have people ideologically motivated people in the centre now, and 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 generally speaking, there's relative harmony harmony within within the centre, and and people tend to to get on relatively well, and and you know it just provides a, a really good environment for rehabilitation. I think this is it's a really important point to to understand because if there's if there's a program designed specifically for low risk individuals and then the people who are involved in it aren't all necessarily lo- low risk that can have a knock on effect not just on those on an individual but on the group as a whole yeah, as absolutely. Well. absolutely absolutely considering this how what defines program success here what 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 does success look like for a program like this so it's a difficult one so so like i said my my role is monitoring and evaluation so this um i I should be able to answer this i hope i can um i mean at the broadest level we understand the objective uh, of this program is to undermine al-shabaab through encouraging more defections um and so, you know, in simple terms, if, if, if more defections happen or people defect because they are aware, are aware of the program, then that uh, represents success for us. But it also comes with the big caveat that uh, a lot of this is far beyond our control. You know, the, the rate of defection uh, res- reflects, for instance, battlefield momentum. If, if Al-Shabaab suddenly starts to, to gain a lot of territory, then the defection rate is likely to, to decrease decrease dramatically and that could reflect badly on us even though it's way beyond our control as, as, as just one example so we're not you know in accordance with with standard m&e um policy or or, or understanding we, we're not responsible uh, we're not accountable at that level um we we hope to contribute to it but we're not accountable to it we are accountable at the slightly lower level which is relating to specifically to rehabilitation uh and and from from last year on was reintegration as well. So. Okay. And we mentioned about why people become involved, but the main the main focus here, um, and it's in the title, is people leaving. It's about de-radicalization and before that disengagement as well. Because before someone gets involved in this in this program, they need to have disengaged really to be that low risk individual. Um, and you and your co-authors put forward uh, three core different factors uh, behind uh, disengagement. You've got structural motivators, individual incentives, and enabling factors. Could you go through those three different aspects uh, and show how that's reflected in the in the results? Okay. And what you yeah, so that, that distinction, the, the three-way division between structural uh, motivators, individual incentives, and, and enabling factors comes from, from an earlier uh, Whitehall report I, I wrote, co-wrote with Martina Zoyton. Uh, from a couple of years, I think it was 2016, maybe. Uh, and so, in terms of in terms of structural factors, that that we interpret that in terms of the context which they find themselves in. So, a lot of that is to do with uh, the context they find themselves within in within uh, Al Shabaab. So, disillusionment with the strategy or the ideology or the tactics, uh, disillusionment with the the personnel or their you know their their, their commanders and so on. Um, and that proved to be a, a big driver. People were, in particular, uh, I mean, 
a lot of, a lot of these are fairly abstract ideas, right? Strategy and ideology and so on. So so it was difficult to it was a difficult difficult area to 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 ask about or to do research into. Um, but certainly there was a lot of people who left Al-Shabaab because they were felt repulsion towards the, the violence that the organization perpetrated, particularly against uh, civilians. So that was a, a, a reoccurring theme. Um, at the time that that particular piece of research or was, was done, we just had um, President Farmaggio had just been elected and there was still uh, quite a, a sense of optimism about him and how he could make... Uh, Somalia a better place. That optimism has, has evaporated now, but at the time, certainly, people felt you know there's just a real good feel feel good factor in the country then. And again, this is a structural factor uh, which drives people potentially to 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 leave Al Shabaab. And certainly, there, were, there was some evidence that, that that did occur with us. In the same way that you know this is a structural factor. Uh, Fernando Reynara has looked at um, in Spain the relevance of of democratization as, as undermining ETA. In a similar way, that's a structural change within the country. Um, that's you know, this is a, a, a slightly smaller structural change, but the, a new president bringing optimism and people leaving for that reason. So. And so, they're the structural motivators. How about those individual incentives and how they um, how they can influence a person's disengagement as well? Okay, yeah, these were again. There's a, there's a there's a quite a range of these uh, economic motives. Again, were were. were pretty strong, uh, ironically, being how a lot of people joined for economic motives. Uh, they also left for econ economic motives. They, they got into the organization and realized that actually the salary was not what they were expecting. It's pretty sporadic, uh, and they weren't really uh, able to, to earn a living from it. So a lot of people left because they, they felt that at that point that they could, they could earn more outside. Uh, living conditions with, with, within Al-Shabaab were, were many people reported them to be horrendous. The food was awful. A lot of people having to to sleep on plastic sheets in the jungle and, and, and nothing else. Um, so people left for that reason. People left because they felt guilty about contributing to, to this horrendous violence and they no longer wanted to, to be part of it. Um, individual incentive, yeah. So, so the sense of obligation, a very, very, very common thing is people leaving because their family members, in particular their, their, their mums had, had communicated to them that they, you know, they had an obligation. A, f a familiar, familial obligation to leave, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so pe a lot of people reported that they they did so for that reason. And that plays a, a big role when we, if we go back and we reconsider those five pillars, that that role of family plays a key role at at the fifth pillar, the reinsertion and reintegration uh, support aspect. Yeah, it's absolutely critical. Absolutely critical. Um, that's one of the key things that we've done since since the very beginning. It's at, at the center is is to try and. Uh, help people reconnect to families where where they've lost contact, and trying to facilitate more communication with families, you know, where where communications are, are limited, because that's yeah, it's, it's absolutely essential for both for, for rehabilitation and for, for reintegration as well. So. And were you seeing many of the the people who were involved in Al Shabaab and involved in this rehabilitation program, who have had who had family members who were previously or currently involved themselves in Al Shabaab as well? Yeah, it's it's. Um, yeah, we, we do get plenty of cases of people who've had brothers who, who were involved or their dad was involved and, and, and so on. So, so yeah, th um, I mean, part of it, I'm sure, comes down to chance because, because Al-Shabaab happens to be recruiting in similar areas, but also, obviously, there's, there's a social network element involved as well. People get involved because they're, you know, they're, their friends or family members have, have sort of introduced them and, and facilitated their movement into the organisation. So. 
Um, what, what we have there in those structural motivators and those individual incentives, they're all well and good, but you need the enabling factors as well. So what kind of enabling factors are you seeing here um, which enable people to, to disengage? Um, so uh, one key one, um, I always think of it as the status calivas variable of, of territorial control. So uh, when territory is lost, that is one key enabling factor uh, that allows people to escape. Um, a lot of people, a lot of people I've interviewed tried to leave Al-Shabaab for months or even years, but were unable to do that because Al-Shabaab punishes you if you try. Uh, punishes you up to and including killing you, up to including death. Um, so, so when this happens, if you know if, if Al-Shabaab loses control, then that that provides them, you know, a channel or a route out. Uh, other structural, uh, sorry, another other enabling factors we focus on quite a bit is, is um, again, f uh, family connections. It's not only a motivator. It's not only that people leave because they feel an obligation to do what their parents say. It's also, in many cases, an enabling factor in that the parents are directly involved or facilitate this process. So, so people, uh, members of Al Shabab, escape and then hide out in their their parents. Uh, place for, for for a few weeks or whatever, or there's a couple of cases of um, of basically a, a parent going up to Al Shabab and basically berating them for three or four days until <laughs> they finally uh, let uh, the individual in question leave. And I'm sure that's pretty unusual and a pretty <laughs> unique case, but but still, there's yeah, families families certainly play a, a huge role in that sense as well. And how long? Generally speaking, were these low-risk uh, members? How long were they? Would they have generally been involved in Al Shabaab? Like, were they uh, were they there for a long stint, or was it very mixed and varied across the the program? I mean, it's mixed. I think probably anywhere from from you know just a few weeks. Uh, I can think of one case in particular of, of an individual who basically got kidnapped and left at the first opportunity, got got quite lucky that a, an opportunity presented itself and, and he escaped. Um, off the top of my head, I think the longest was maybe seven or eight years, something like that, that, that I've spoken to personally. Um, that would be quite a bit longer than, than would be typical, of, but, but, but yeah, but, but, but it varies. It varies quite a bit. So... so that's the the disengagement of those individuals. How did, do you feel that that fits with the broader literature outside of Somalia and also within Somalia in relation to what your findings uh, would suggest about uh, individuals' disengagement from Al-Shabaab to what others have found? You, you mentioned Fernando Reniares' work previously, but how does it fit with other people's research? I mean, I think it's, 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 it's similar. I think a lot of people are finding fairly similar things. Uh, Mary Beth Altia has, has looked at this. John Horgan's looked at this. Um, I think a lot of people are coming to fairly similar conclusions. Uh, there are, you know, there's, there's lots and lots of different reasons why people disengage. It is really, really individual. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly a lot of overlap between cases, I think. So we've got two aspects of this uh, of this report we've talked about the engagement we've talked about the disengagement but what does the de-radicalization look like in relation to this uh, to this center the de-radicalization and the rehabilitation okay well the de-radicalizations de um 
obviously just to to to, to put that to make sure we're, we're talking about the, the same thing de-radicalization is one of those problematic one of the many problematic concepts and <laughs> plenty of problematic <laughs> concepts <laughs> they're all problematic aren't yeah, they? exactly. um, but de-radicalization I, I mean when it was I think it's maybe it's probably fair to say maybe four or five years ago there was more confusion about it than there is now. It still causes confusion, but from what we're reading recently, most people have come down to the idea that it, this relates specifically to changes in, in attitudes, and that's distinguished from disengagement, which is changes in behaviors, right? Specifically, either leaving an organization or not no longer being involved in, in uh, contributing to violence. Um, so de-radicalization as, as a change, a positive change in attitudes. Um, we've, we've seen this at the, at the center. Um, as I said before, when we started off, uh, when, we, when we took responsibility for, this, for the center in 2015, uh, there were a number of ideologically motivated individuals in there who shouldn't have been in there, but, but they were. Um, we I conducted research, I think it was 2017, uh, I think maybe the sample was, it's, it's, it's in the annex, but there's about, the sample was probably about 30 individuals, and we identified, or identified six people who had essentially de-radicalized uh, during their time in the center. So they had come in as supporters of, of, of Al-Shabaab, and at the, po at the point I had interviewed them, they no longer uh, supported Al-Shabaab. Mm -hmm. And interest, interestingly, um, within the center itself, we provide, uh, we have imams who provide uh, religious ser uh, services. We also have a civic peace and religious uh, education program. So we are you know, intentionally trying to de-radicalize people, as it were. We are trying to change attitudes. Uh, and certainly these, these six individuals pointed to these things and said, yes, they had an influence, but also uh, of equal relevance is the fact that now suddenly in the center they had access to broader perspectives they were able to to get in contact with family members who th and they hadn't been previously and the family members were were were, were you know helping them to to change their perspectives um, they also in the center they had access to far far broader range of media um, previously when they were with al-shabaab it's 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 a lot of them only had access to, to Al-Shabaab radio. Now, suddenly, they're in the center. They can watch TV. They can listen to all sorts of radio channels. And they get a much broader perspective on life. Mm. Um, equally, a lot of them, you know, they've been taught for however long, however long they've been in Al-Shabaab that, that the government were, were, you know, evil, essentially. To, so for them to arrive at the center and see, actually, the government is trying to do something genuinely trying to do something to help them out, providing them with vocational training, uh, providing them with good facilities, and that in itself changed a lot of opinions there. You know, this was inconsistent with the idea that, that the government was uh, the root of all evil. So, And this is, you can see this reflected across the literature, across the literature, and on disengagement across the literature, and on, uh, on de-radicalization as well. And you mentioned there about access to the radio. And one of the interesting things for me, there were many interesting things in the report, but one of the interesting things is that when there were members of Al-Shabaab, that it was generally through radio and mobile phones that they got information. What effect did that have on those earlier pillars of the, of the, the, the program, the National Program for Treatment and Handling of Disengaged Combatants, uh, in getting that, those counter-messages and getting those alternative or counter-narratives out as well? Um, 
we hear about leaflet drops the whole time, but it was found in the report that leaflet drops really weren't that effective here as well. So how do we need to take all of that into consideration for those earlier stages? Yeah, it's 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 a difficult one to answer. It's quite a crowded space. There's a lot of people who are try in that area trying to trying to do outreach one way or another, trying to reach them, trying to um, find a way to, 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 to encourage them to leave Al-Shabaab. Some are more successful than others. Um, it's it, we have a an outreach advisor within the team who who know, obviously knows a lot more about this than I do. But f from what I've heard, it's uh, there's a lot of let's say inefficiency <laughs> with within this. Um, so, for instance, the, I, I believe there's a website was set up to try and engage uh, to try and encourage Al Shabab members to disengage. Al Shabab doesn't members don't have access to the internet by and large, very few do, um, or, or at least that's what the research I conducted showed. The, as you said, it's the, the, the basically that their main two uh, sources of information are mobile phones, calls, they're allowed calls with their parents, or most of them are, uh, and, and radio. But then the radio is, in some cases, only just Al-Shabaab radio. So, 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 sorry, John. So, so, yeah. So, in in in, in some, it's it's difficult. It's yeah. difficult to reach people when Al Shabaab has deliberately put things in place to stop them being reached, essentially. So. And even when we do have that possibility to reach them, there's this whole issue of, well, will this be trusted? Will these individuals be trusted? And same when you come to the to the rehabilitation centre as well. So, how did the people within the re rehabilitation centre? you as researchers, as well as these imams as well, and the government entity as a whole that you were talking about there, how did they go from that such a distrusted level uh, to gaining the trust of individuals? I suppose by being low risk, that process might have happened before coming to the centre, but what, was the, what would that process be like? Um, the, the process of how they gain How they gain the trust? Yeah, I mean... It is difficult, but I think you, you know, as you said, a lot of them are low risk. So they, so a lot of them not didn't necessarily lack trust in the government to start with. Um, we do provide within the civic and peace and religious education. We do provide, uh, you know, plenty of material on 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 how they to help people understand what it, what it is to to be a citizen. What's their you know their their rights and responsibilities for the different layers of government. What you know what what the different parts of government are supposed to be doing, how they're supposed to be functioning. Um, providing them with a lot of history about Somalia to you know, hopefully uh, increase their understanding of, or identity of, of themselves as, as Somalis, which potentially can, can reduce their identity as, as, as members of Al-Shabaab. Mm. Um, so it's broad. Um, I'm not sure that really answers. No, no, it does. <laughs> it does it, and it, it, linking up to your to your previous answer as well, it, you can see that process in place. You can you can see all that in place, and and the important role that it plays as well. Yeah. I mean, just just the the outreach in particular is is uh, well, it, you can probably say that all the five pillars are, are constantly being redesigned or added to, and so on. But the outreach in particular is one area that we're we're currently looking at to try and uh, work out how to do it better. Certainly, with, with with our mandates uh, in 2015 was specifically just to focus on the centre in Mogadishu, specifically just to focus on on rehabilitation, with the idea that once we got that right or sufficiently right, uh, that mandate would would 
broaden out to also include outreach and broaden out to also include reintegration. And we're at that point now, but still it's, it's, these things are, are a work in progress just because we've, we've only fairly recently started thinking about. One of the important aspects uh, across the rehabilitation program is the education. The mm -hmm. education, not just, we talked about historical, the history of Somalia, we talked about political situation, but practical education outside of all of this as well. What role did that play? Uh, I think, it, I mean, it, it plays a big role. A, a lot of the people, uh, a lot of the beneficiaries are, are illiterate. Um, so, you know, we provide them with basic skills or they're provided with basic skills in the center, maths, uh, reading, writing, and so on. Uh, they're also provided with vocational training. Um, I forget what the, the full list of, of, of different courses that are on offer right now, but it's things like tailoring and, and mechanics and so on. Welding is another one. Um, so this is, you know, providing them with a skill set which hopefully they can they can use once they leave the centre to, to find employment. And again, this, this ties up to, you know, the the findings on why they joined Al-Shabaab in the first place is, is this lack of, of livelihood opportunities or, or, you know, limited prospects for, for earning a living. So obviously the the rehabilitation itself is tailored to try and address that particular issue. Yeah, and it's by giving them these, by looking at why people were joining, why people were leaving, and seeing that it's not all about ideology, it's not all about. I, I there was there was it mentioned during the report that when you looked at why people engaged, that only a tiny group said that they want that it was to make a better future yeah. or something like that. That it's for those practical individual incentives as well. So by providing these this vocational training, it really it really does uh, does play a role. And also, you within the centre, the role of mental health support plays uh, plays a key role as well. Could you give us a bit of insight into that as well? Yeah. So we provide. Uh, you know, this is a, a fairly niche area, so I'm, I'm conscious of not wanting to to. Uh, talk too much about this because the more I talk about it the more likely I'm, I'm, I'm to get it wrong because uh, it's quite specialist obviously but we provide uh, psychosocial support uh, and also uh, psychiatry yeah and, and is this for all participants or for all members of the uh, yeah, I mean, all, everyone's assessed and, and everyone is provided with the support that they're needed. Uh, so there's even facilities for, you know, for, for extreme cases if, 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 they, if their mental health, health issues are too severe that they shouldn't be in the centre, we, we find alternate channels to deal with them so that they can, you know, be supported mm -hmm. elsewhere outside of the centre. And within the engagement and disengagement, we weren't really seeing the role of mental health within those factors there as well, but it still does need to be tackled as well. It still does need to be. Yeah, um, certainly at the, at the very least it's, you know, it's a, it's a moral obligation on our, for us to help people and to support people who, who are suffering. Um, I, I don't have the statistics on this either, but, but the, the incidence of PTSD, for instance, for, in, for example, is, is surprisingly low amongst the beneficiaries. Uh, but still, uh, you know, certainly, if, if they're under our care, then we have a moral responsibility to to, to help them as much as is, is possible, irrespective of of you know whether that's contributing to their or you know reducing the likelihood that they will return to Al Shabaab in the future or whatever else it's you know it's it's an end in itself in in that sense and does this support and the other support that's given within the center does this continue 
after and during the reintegration stage? How long do, is the connection with the centre? Yeah, so the reintegration, um, as I said before, this is, this, our mandate expanded last year to also uh, include reintegration. So this is still essentially being designed mm-hmm. as we, we speak. And, and, and it's, you know, it's, it, it takes a while. You, you don't want to uh, go ahead and, and implement something without being absolutely sure that you're doing the right thing first. Um, but we're, we're looking at a, a, you know, a, a quite a few different options here. So obvious examples are community outreach, uh, trying to make sure that we're trying to encourage communities to accept people who have left the centre. Um, a few things we've done since since the beginning in any case so for instance there's the you know like i said before the the reconnection activities to people who've lost contact with families is, is an example of that certain individuals are not able to return to their homes or their villages um for security reasons so so in certain instances we provide support for for relocation relocation packages um but now that we're looking to expand more into to reintegration, we're also looking at things like potentially uh, post-exit psychosocial support to continue after after exit, um, and also obviously facilitating access to to finance, to to employment, to placements, to to additional education, depending on on each individual's needs and preferences. And you mentioned there the the role of getting um, community acceptance. Um, is this a is this a, a key issue? Is this is this um, a problem uh, for people when they're leaving uh, Al Shabaab, but also when they're leaving a center a center like this, that they're e- that they're not being accepted into community? It's a really yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting one. So so the majority of our beneficiaries are not from Mogadishu, but the vast majority uh, choose to reintegrate in in Mogadishu. And I'm sure there's a variety of, of reasons for that, including you know more more uh, livelihoods opportunities being one obvious one. Um, obviously, there's the the anonymity of of being in a city rather being than being in a in a, a village where everyone knows you. Um, so, what was the question again? So <laughs> the the role that, Sorry, that community support play is this is this a problem uh, okay. for of acceptance of people coming back in? So one one uh, one of the pieces of research that that we did in two thousand and seventeen was looking specifically at reintegration, and the findings were that the vast majority of respondents did not report issues with with uh, being with stigmatization with with being discriminated against after leaving the centre, um, and there's a couple of uh, reasons for that, one of which is, is, as I said before, they were reintegrating into to Mogadishu where they weren't necessarily known. Um, and another thing which I think w- drove that result was that a lot of them were not, were being very discreet about their, their background when they were returning to communities. So it wasn't necessarily that all of them were being accepted, it was more that people were just, in many cases, people were, were unaware of that pe- these people used to be with Al-Shabaab. And so within this, and it's it's clear from uh, from across this report, the importance of environment, the importance of environment in which someone's engaging, the importance of environment in which someone is disengaging from, as well. That's clear throughout the report. But also, how important is the environment for you as a researcher, as well? Because you were carrying out semi, you were. You were carrying out this research in this context as with all the roles that you had. So how did that affect you 
as as a researcher in in being able to to put together a report like this and carry out your analysis i mean it's 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 challenging the initially in when we were first doing this in 2015 uh, there was quite a lot of hist uh, uh, hostility from a lot of the respondents um the as i said before the center was not was not in great shape by by any stretch of the imagination a lot of people had been uh, in the center or it's a, a previous center since 2010 so they've been there for, for five years uh, with no plan for for how they were going to leave there was nothing in place so essentially they were you know detained with you know they're in limbo for, for and and no one could tell them how long they're going to be there for uh, obviously that's some the f one of the first thing we, we we addressed in 2015 when, when we arrived but to, to to come back to your question, yeah, it was it was hostile. People were not particularly, or many of the respondents were not particularly interested in, in answering my questions. It was, you know, they were far more interested in, in getting me to tell them what's happening, why they're there, when they're going to leave. They had, you know, much bigger things to think about them than <laughs> answering my questions at the time. Understand totally understandably. Um, so so certainly the, f the, f the first period of research was was definitely the most difficult. Since then, it's become a lot easier a whole lot easier um a lot of people are very very happy to uh to be interviewed to be honest they, you know i think i think you know a lot of people want uh, are, you know pleased to be given the opportunity to tell their story to to you know be in an environment where someone's actually listening to them and, and, and is interested in what they have to say um that's not always the case we still do get people who refuse to be interviewed or and, and obviously we give them the choice at the beginning it's you know it's part of the, the standard uh, discussion at the top that you know you this is a purely voluntary process you can leave at any any point or as our talking terror interviews as well <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so yeah so but in, in the vast majority of cases it's it, it's it's a it's a pleasant experience all, all around it's just a, you know it's 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 a, it's a, it's a nice semi-structured interview but also a you know pleasant conversation with someone and, and you know you share this experience together so and a lot of our listeners will be aware of of an article that you put out in studies in conflict and terrorism where you put forward a guide to interviewing uh, terrorist and violent extremists um, what year was this published again? this was 2018 was it or 2017 so it's just literally come out now oh. but the uh, the online version came out i think a year and a half ago i'm not okay. sure how to yeah to so count it <laughs> yeah so it, a recent article yeah. uh, in studies in conflict and terrorism a guide uh, to interviewing terrorists and violent extremists um what what do you what were the core elements of this while today's in, uh, interview is primarily based on your de-radicalization and disengagement in Somalia uh, paper. What were, what were the key lessons uh, that you put forward in your guide? Um, so with the guide, I mean, it's, it's broken down into to four main sections, looking into uh, developing key research questions, sampling issues, designing instruments of questionnaires, and, and reporting your your findings and, and the background to it is is I've you know been been reading up on the literature and I'm seeing the same mistakes uh, and I, I and I use the word mistakes deliberately these are you know errors which in, which which shouldn't be occurring you know within within the research very often uh, seeing these repeated quite often and, and I wanted to to write something to to try and push back against that and to say that this isn't you know this is I recognise this as a difficult 
very, very challenging form of research, but there are standards which, which must be maintained. Um, so the initial draft was, was um, a little bit too blunt for its own good, <laughs> to be honest. And I sort of shelved it uh, for about six months because it just sound like, it sounded like me having a rant, essentially. Uh, and then, yeah, about six months down the line, I sort of, it came to me that actually I could probably reframe the article a little bit more in a more constructive and positive way and talk, you know, treat it more as a, a guide to how to, to do this type of, of research and then use these examples of, of how, you know, the mistakes that we do see uh, to, as illustrations and then talk about how we overcome these and, and more generally how this type of research can be conducted. So what were these mistakes that were being made? Uh, so, you know, a common one is omitted variable bias. People are not looking at, at, for instance, very obvious things like, you know, adventure seeking or revenge or status as, as drivers of, of why people get involved in this, in this violence. Um, a lot of people haven't done their homework in terms of looking at relevant theory. Um, some, they're coming to conclusions which, which theory would tell them is, you know, this is problematic. Um, even down to you know very basic things like like leading questions is is not uncommon uh, surprisingly but it's 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 not uncommon if you see uh, leading questions in the literature um, reporting findings which are beyond what the which makes inferences what beyond what the sample allows is it's n I think it's less common but it still happens um, and yeah I just didn't really think this was good enough so <laughs> and do you t do you see things improving or i think so i mean if this is sort of going back to the, the mark segment stagnation debate i think generally i think there are improvements in the literature generally um but i do think you do have to wade through a lot of substandard stuff to to find it mm. um and these are things that you would you would see in an undergraduate research methods class of what not to do, what you're what you're putting forward. Yeah, I mean to to give to give one example, I keep on coming back to it in in various articles and so on. Um, but UNDP did a report, uh, Journey to Extremism in Africa. I think it came out a couple of years ago, I think now. Um, and one of their and the only reason I keep on coming back to it is just because this this report has had a huge huge influence on policymakers, huge. And it's it's so well presented, so well marketed. The team did. Um, they did a, basically a tour of European capitals and, and various Af uh, African uh, capitals presenting their findings and, and policy makers by and large bought into it. One of their big findings is that, that tipping points is a major phenomenon. Um, you know, the idea that people get closer and closer and closer to getting involved in violent extremism and then something specific happens, you know, an act of state repression or whatever it is and that pushes them over the edge. Suddenly they're involved. And, and obviously that that does occur. Certainly, that does occur. My, you know, my own research in in in, in Mogadishu has has shown that. I, you know, I have no doubt that that does occur. The problem is, um, the UNDP report probably far overstates the extent to which that occurs because the question they use is leading. The question is, um, what specific thing happened that finally motivated motivated you to join the organisation? That finally motivated you to, to 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 join the organization, and and you know if you're if you're a respondent, you're there's a very good chance you're sitting there and you start to scratch your head trying to find something that finally motivated you to join, even if that thing doesn't exist. And so this is basic stuff. This is this is very very basic stuff that that an organization like UNDP shouldn't be uh, an error that they shouldn't be committing, essentially. So, 
we've we've got some lessons there we've got some key lessons on what we could do better uh as an area and yeah anyone who wants to to go back to that age-old question of uh whether there is a stagnation in terrorism research you can go to the last few minutes of every episode really of, of series one of this where you get people on all sides of the fence uh on both sides of the fence and some who just sit on the fence permanently as well it's the final final question in all of my my uh series one entries and i actually have a paper coming out uh based on that as well or hopefully coming out soon based on on that issue of stagnation um I think we're improving. I think there are issues that are there, but we can see really good research done by um, done by a lot of innovative scholars. But yeah, there are huge improvements that do need to be made at the same time. Um, we need to be innovative, but we need to be aware of the the barriers that we face and be honest about what our, reso- uh, what our results say, be honest about the way that we approached it, be honest about our samples. So from the very beginning in this interview, we had to emphasize these are the low-risk individuals that this sample is. This, this research into de-radicalization and disengagement in Somalia, it's not based on high-risk individuals at all. It's based on those, those low-risk individuals. So, um, But James, I think this is, it's really interesting research, both your uh, Rusi paper as well as that paper um, for in studies in conflict and terrorism. I'll put out and I'll tweet out a guide, uh, a link to both of those uh, through our Twitter feed, as well as in the description within this podcast. Um, actually, before, I, there was a question I forgot to ask. and Within the report, it was mentioned about change in precedent within Somalia and the effect that that uh, did have on some individuals could you go could you mention that uh, what what did you find in relation to that and i know it's not across your whole sample but what what effect were we seeing there um yeah i mean there was this was if my memory's right around about january february march 2017 i think when farmaggio uh became the president of somalia and there was just generally a very positive feeling around the place that he was the person who could deliver change and he could uh, unify the country and so on and um, and it didn't last particularly long but certainly there were a number there have been a number of people I've spoken to who reported that actually this influenced their decision to to uh, disengage from 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 al-shabaab yeah uh, this uh, it's something that we often are just dis- Discounting our politicians and the the role that they play in the effect, but this is a this is a case where for some for some individuals yeah. that it did have a positive yeah. effect. Yeah. yeah, so we need to look at we need to look at factors like that, those broad uh, those broad national factors as well as those individual factors. Well, there was an example within the report of someone who was taught how to drive, for example, and the role that that played as well. So we need to be able to consider all of these factors when looking at disengagement, deradicalization, etc. I encourage listeners as well to listen to last week's episode um, where we're talking much more broadly about de-radicalization and disengagement and what these concepts mean and other other core examples of this as well so i they really match up well this episode and last week's one but james it just leaves me to thank you for being part of today's podcast, for being part of Talking Terror. I'd encourage all our listeners to read uh, this report as well as your other research and your guide to interviewing terrorists and violent extremists as well. Um, 
and what's next actually what's next for you uh, in this in this area of research as well as as in other areas or where's your research going next so hope i've just moved to sweden fairly recently and i'm hoping to start i've always always sort of focused on africa middle east and and, and asia so i'm hoping to start to to work in europe for the for the first time hoping to crack the the europe market so similar similar themes but very good. Well, we'll watch this space. We'll watch <laughs> yeah. this space. But thanks, th- thanks very much for having me, John. It's been it's been a pleasure being on. Well, it it was it's been a pleasure having you, and, and thanks very much for agreeing to to be one of our guests on this second series. And if you want to find out more of what we're doing in series two of Talking Terror, be sure to follow us at terror underscore podcast. Follow me at Morrison underscore JF, um, and. Be sure to get that discount. Be sure to get that 35% discount on all books in the Middle East and politics section of bloom3.com through using the discount code TALKINGIBT19. That's all one word, capital letters, TALKINGIBT and the number 19. And be sure to check out our MSc in Terrorism and Counters Terrorism Studies here at Royal Holloway University of London starting in September, October 2019. Until next week, goodbye. Thanks.